0: Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Nick. Hello. We're joined by Nick Means. Nicholas Means? What do you like to go by? Nick's great. Nick Means. We're joined by Nick. The
1: Means is short for Means Serious Business. Means. <laughs> I did promise Sean he could say that. <laughs> he gave me permission to sit, make whatever puns I want to make about his name, mm. which is probably not a smart decision. Probably not. Although that's the only one I've got, so
0: <laughs> maybe I'll think more. We'll see. So you are... I don't actually know your official title. Engineering leader is what VP I... VP of engineering at Move Health is my official title. Okay. And yeah. so um, you are one of the few people to have an entire episode of this show dedicated to something that you did. So we figured we should have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt a little left out when I listened to that episode. <laughs> <gonna be> <laughs> like they have... They know how to get in contact with me. They could have just had me on. So we had... We talked about... um your keynote from RailsConf in Kansas City. Right. Twenty yeah. yep. fifteen. Yeah. Which yeah. was the first time that I think I'd ever seen one of your talks. It was the first time I met you. And then, you know, I was like, I don't know what to expect here, but I met this guy at the speaker dinner before, so I'm gonna go. <laughs> and so I went and was blown away. It was just an awesome story. And then at the end I was like, Oh yeah, also it's applicable and it was a good story. It is so it, I think it is a good story. I feel yeah. like that's kind of your brand in your in your talks. Is that what you go for? It's what I've stumbled into, yeah. <laughs>
2: No, it works well for me. I like the I like the storytelling part of it and being able to tie it
0: into what we do for a living is a bonus at the end. Right. And so like the the talk at we'll link it to the show notes when this comes out for the episode that we did previously, but that was about Skunkworks at Lockheed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that book, that talk got me to read a book, which is a, a feat. So, so I read the I read <laughs> nice. the Skunkworks book and was like, wow, this is so much, this is even better. Like there's even more here than others yeah, in the talk. there's so top. much there. It's so great. And then the talk you gave yesterday was about Three Mile Island. Hmm? And you talked about a book there called, what, what's the title of the book? Atomic I took Accidents. No, not that one. Not that one? Okay. Nope. The one, oh, the, the Human President's Error Report. one. the Human Error one. Well, that one. I did yes. talk.
2: I talked about a lot of books. Uh, that's <laughs> Field Guide to Understanding Human Error by Sidney Decker.
0: Yes, and that was the one I took a picture of and was like, yeah. he's got me again. I'm going to read it. Yeah, that's a I'm phenomenal book. book. Because one of the things that I took away from that talk is you had, I don't know if it's from that book or your original line, but basically saying that human error is never the cause or never the problem.
2: That's, that's straight from the book, yeah. Okay.
0: And so... Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that idea? About
2: that idea? Yeah. Well, it's often when, when things go wrong or there's an accident, we often reach to blame the people involved. It's it's human instinct to do that because it's really convenient for us because that's where our brains go immediately when something happens. But it's almost never the true cause of what happens. Even, even when somebody makes a poor decision or does something that's obviously incorrect, there's something that taught them to make that decision or encouraged them to make that decision. And so only by digging into those underlying causes can you figure out what actually happened and why it happened and keep it from happening again. Yeah, I think the Challenger disaster is a really good example of, of
1: basically exactly that, right? Where there was a very, very specific engineering decision and a lot of people who could specifically be blamed if they, and, and were at the time. But that led into a whole investigation into go fever at NASA and, and why people, when the engineers knew that, that, that this was not hardware capable of launching in, in freezing conditions, why they tried to launch the rocket when it was 20 degrees outside. Right. Why didn't they scrub? Right. <laughs> and there are so many people who could have prevented it and knew about this risk and, and all chose not to act. Yeah, it's never it's it, it was not it was not the fault of the flight director who probably would have made the final call. It's not the fault of the engineers who created who created the O rings that failed in the first place. It it was a it was a systematic cultural failure.
2: Yeah, and one of the things Decker talks about in the book is that safety and productivity are always at tension in any organization. Yeah, and so I mean, if you optimize for perfect safety, you you can't get anything done, mm-hmm. and if you optimize for perfect productivity, you're almost certainly doing things unsafely.
0: So you have to find the equilibrium in any given situation. There's a um the Challenger thing reminded me. There's a a great video that was the New York Times put out around the 25th anniversary. Is that was that round about a few years ago? That was very yeah. That was uh, I think a couple of years ago, year ago, two um, years 25th ago. anniversary of that Challenger disaster. And the video it's called a retro report, and so it just talks about like it does the whole like oh okay it was the O ring fault or mm-hmm. whatever, and then they go into like no let's look at the culture here. And then unfortunately I believe this is the same video where they kind of revisit it at the end and talk about. Columbia, and how like you know different technical failure, but perhaps some of the same like underlying cultural things that kind of led to it. But right,
1: I think that one was much more of a lack of proper contingency planning, because I mean they knew they knew that was going to burn up on reentry, you know, long before they tried, but there was no sort of safety plan in place in case something went wrong. Yeah, and they didn't have enough life support on the shuttle to develop the plans while they were in orbit. Right, exactly. They yeah. just had to try They're, it. And, and I mean, now, now of course, it's much easier to have a backup plan because the the space station is there. And, basically, I believe any any crewed flights, even that are interplanetary, are going to launch into an orbit where they could potentially rendezvous with the ISS if needed. Hmm. Which, I mean, if you're going to go to Mars, I don't know that a 53-degree inclined orbit is <laughs> going to uh, be a terribly efficient thing to do. So we'll see if they follow through on that. But... Um, It's much easier to have a contingency plan when we literally have life support for humans up in space. Right.
0: So like I feel like a lot of your talks, although not the first one I saw, but you know, you're, you also have like a, a plane crash talk, which mm-hmm. is good. Three Mile Island. So you're, you're big on disasters, I can see. I do like and disasters, so yeah. And so we had kind of like a timely, just yesterday, speaking of like initial first story, your talk talks about the like the first story is what you think of immediately to blame. And then right. the second story is like, well, what actually happened? So yesterday after the talk, there was a um, an accident on a Southwest flight, which had an emergency landing and unfortunately somebody lost their life. And then I started to see things come across Twitter that was like, here's a first story. And I'm like categorizing it in my head. And then this morning I saw something interesting that was like a picture of people who had you know the masks came Mm -hmm. down Mm -hmm. and they had put the masks around their mouths but not covering their noses and the the comment was like look at these people you have to listen like (laughs) you have to listen to the space to the to the um space people (laughs) to the the flight attendants when they're giving the safety briefing like you're all using this wrong and then it's just like, well, are they using it wrong or is it maybe designed wrong if that's how people act in a crisis?
2: Yeah, I mean, a little nose notch and that problem yeah. is solved. That's all it takes.
0: Right. Well,
2: <laughs> I, 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 I honestly think you can start to
1: bring human error here a little bit more because we're also talking about people whose first thought was, oh, let me get a periscope going before I put my oxygen mask on. <laughs> this Not that's true. necessarily the, brightest, uh, this is the true. brightest ideas. That's Twitter's
0: fault. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's going to be interesting to see that story develop like into the what is the actual underlying cause. And we'll yeah. get one of those you know, detailed reports, I'm sure. And
2: yeah, we, I mean, so the inter- interesting thing about that is there's actually a federal airworthiness directive that's pending that would likely require more frequent inspections of those CFM 56 fan disks. Just hasn't been
0: implemented yet because there was a very similar incident on Southwest back in 2016. And so the the thinking, there's nothing, like, official as far as I know of what happened, basically. Is that like, something, bro- a fan, a blade broke off of the fan? From what
2: I could see from the pictures, it looks like, yeah, a, the fan tossed a blade. And the thing that happened in 2016, they resolved that the blade came out the front of the engine somehow. And that's not supposed to happen. It shouldn't discharge debris out the front of the engine. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the same thing happened yesterday. Right. It, it mm-hmm. threw a blade, came out of the front of the engine, and unfortunately impacted one of the windows
0: on the plane. Right. And so there's going to be a second story here of, like, if we knew this was a thing, right? Yeah. Well, why, <laughs> why didn't the we move faster? That
2: directive not in place. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> and
1: we we know pretty well at this point how to keep these things from breaking off. We do, yeah. We're, we're pretty good at keeping titanium functional at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you were, you, were, you were mentioning yesterday, that'll be interesting to see since the new engines that are being used on the 37800. Mm-hmm. And the 787. And the 787 are carbon fiber instead of titanium, yeah. which we don't necessarily have as much experience with when it comes to planes.
2: Right. Well, and and the testing methods that you would use for a titanium disc don't work at all on carbon fiber. Right. Because so much of it's like eddy current based type magnetic inspection and carbon fiber is obviously not
0: conductive. Right. Interesting. So how do you identify when you're preparing talks? How do you identify what stories you think will make good talks? I ingest a lot of stories. That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I read a lot
2: and a lot of very varied things. Um, One of the reasons for that is that software engineering as a discipline is really young in terms of human perspective. We haven't been doing it all that long. And so as someone who cares deeply about engineering leadership and leading well, I think there's a lot to be learned by looking outside of software engineering for lessons. And so that's a lot of what I'm doing. Uh, Writing the talks just gives me the excuse to spend a month or two deep diving on one of these things and doing a meditation on it, essentially.
0: Yeah. I will say, like the talks that are more like story based, like that, are the ones that I go home and I'm like, "Hey, Christina, that's my wife's name. Like, let's watch this talk when it comes out. You'll, it's like a great story. It's really yeah. cool." So I think it's those are fun to share, and then the fact that you can, like I said, that you can loop them back in and be like, "Well, there's something to learn here for everybody." Right. It's awesome.
1: I'm hoping to try and crib your your style for um, a conference. With, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you've uh, you've seen the pitch, but uh, not yeah. basically a talk about. The Gemini program specifically and why, even though it was designed to develop all the technology required to go to the moon, why we then also separately developed Apollo as opposed to going with any of the many, many, many proposals that would have involved Gemini going to the moon, which probably would have got us there cheaper and faster. I think both the program itself is just fascinating to look at from a software developer's point of view. Just why was this one craft able to develop so many things that we had never done before, both rendezvous, docking? Uh, The first spacewalk, uh, the length of orbits changed, and the Gemini 4, I believe, was the first—I can't be right. I think it was Gemini 4 that was the first crewed one, um, but did not have the life support for the the two-week flight that eventually happened, but also didn't have the hardware required for them to add that, and it was just the modular design of it that let them swap that out. But I think that's very interesting, and then also the fact that it didn't go to the moon has some great parallels in software as well, because ultimately it was not a technical problem, because nothing ever gets killed by technical problems. It was a people problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. and basically when politics leaks into engineering, which I mean, if you're NASA, it is impossible to not have happen, but that can kill projects. I think it's impossible not
2: to have happen anywhere. I mean, that's pol- true. Politics mm-hmm. always leaks into what we do.
1: That is very true. Gemini's really cool though. If you've if you've never looked into it, like you should.
0: <laughs> Gemini, huh?
1: That is how they pronounce it.
0: Yeah. Huh. Huh? I've always said Gemini. I, I have as well. <laughs> I, I
1: used to, and then I did some research on it and, and like watched you know some clips of old news reports from that time, and it was it was very definitely specifically pronounced Gemini.
0: Okay, huh. interesting. I wanted to pivot if we can for a moment. All right, because I know as a, a VP of engineering, you must have a hand in hiring, right? building, I do. Your, building your team. When I come to these conferences, often people will ask me advice on how they can make themselves stand out when they're trying to get hired or people who are fresh out of boot camps or things like that. Like, how do I separate myself? How do I... Like, they see it as, like, nobody will hire people out of a boot camp. But as somebody who's reviewing resumes, is I see is, like, we just get a lot of people that come out of boot camps and it takes right. a lot to stand out. And so I try and give some advice on, like... On ways that people in that situation or really in any situation can stand out what do you look for this is a conversation i've had with a few people in particular like in that initial sort of like here's a pile of resumes and however you get them in some sort of hr system or whatever however yeah. you get those these days like what is it that makes somebody stand out this will you? probably not surprise you but i look for
2: stories <laughs> yeah, cover letter Cover letter, or even in the resume, I, I look for not a list of skills I have acquired, but a list of impacts that I have had on the businesses I've been a part of. Mm-hmm. And so displaying impact, I mean, it's its sort of like in baseball stats right now, the big thing is wins above replacement. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the same sort of thing. You're looking for somebody who can join your team that will make your team as a whole better.
0: The value over replacement exactly. hire. Yeah. For. The, yep.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, what I tell people is, like, I don't usually look at a resume all that in that detailed of a fashion. And what instead, like, on the ThoughtBot application, we ask, like, a few questions. Mm-hmm. And so I look at those to tell me. I guess I've never really thought of it. I'm looking for you to tell me a story. I've always put it to people. I'm looking for you to show me that you, like, put some care into this and, like, right. thought about what we're looking for and how you fit into that. Right. Um, in areas where you might do even more than I was anticipating or something like that.
2: Right. Well, and you get a feel for their ability to communicate and... I think that's incredibly important and often overlooked. Um, you know, because technical ability can help let you write software, but you have to be able to communicate to write correct software that actually fits business need. I don't think we want to accept
1: like if you meet the technical qualifications and are generally a reasonable person at communicating. I don't think we like to think about how much actually we probably are more interchangeable than than, than we'd like to pretend. And I kind of think, to a certain extent, hiring is less about finding the candidate who's going to accelerate your team so much because any qualified candidate will do about the same amount of work. But a bad candidate
0: can absolutely trash a team. Yep, that's true. Yeah, and that's at ThoughtBot, we don't do remote work for the most part. Like, we allow you to work remotely when needed, but not like a as a lifestyle thing. Right. And so one of the things I've been saying, I've been talking to people about is like, you know, <laughs> as more and more companies allow for this it's harder for us to compete but we also need to recognize that like the single reason that people enjoy coming to work for thoughtbot ultimately is the people that they get to work with every day so if we make a mistake there it's going to cost us more than just like oh well that was a mistake in hire and maybe we have to let that person go right. it's going to cost us other people as well when they're like well there's some other disadvantages about this job and also like I'm not really enjoying coming to work with these people every day Right, so we have to make sure that they really enjoy coming to work with those people every day And I'm sure that's true also in a remote context like you can't you have to also enjoy working with the people It's just that you will not be next to them all day. right.
2: Yeah I mean if anything it requires people that have a higher level of empathy because you have to allow for each other's communication foibles over distance. Because it's it's just, it takes more work to communicate in a remote organization. It's not necessarily a drawback. Uh, it ends up that you get more written communication that way. So you right. have an archive of the communication that's happened. And you can look back on it and look back on decisions. It just requires you to do things differently.
1: I don't think it's wrong for ThoughtBot to disallow remote work. I personally don't like working remotely. I, I, I work better when I have an office to go to. And mm. I'm better at communicating in person than over than over chat. Like if there's anybody on your team who is remote, you are now a remote team. Mm-hmm. I think there will always be a place for for companies that explicitly don't allow remote work for the people who don't want to work remotely.
2: Which is, you know, of course a, a shrinking uh <laughs> demographic, but there'll always be some people. Yeah, there will. I mean, and that's one of the things that you end up talking about quite a bit in the interview is okay, do you have a place with a door that can close that you can work in? Right. Because you don't want somebody who's trying to work from their kitchen table. It's not going to work well for them. And if it's their first remote
0: job, they may just not know that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How does onboarding work when like somebody is like, I've only started three jobs post-college in my life. But, like, it's always been a process of, like, I sit with somebody and, you know, they show me everything that I need to know for a little bit. And then...
2: I mean, it's not particularly different. It's just done over a video call, usually. Yeah, I, I mean guess. If, if, if
1: you're going to be working remotely, it seems like showing you everything that you're going to be doing remotely <laughs> can be done <laughs> remotely.
0: Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Turn around. There's your office door. Close it. <laughs>
2: yep. My company has an office in Denver, so sometimes we'll bring new people into the office in Denver and I'll fly up and, and hang out
0: with them for a day or two. Cool. So we talked about, like, trying to tell a story with either your resume or, you know, whatever, in a cover letter or whatever form that might take. Mm -hmm. What about for people who their their story just isn't super long career-wise yet, right? So we're talking about, like, recent boot camp grads, recent college grads. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you think that they can do to separate themselves
2: I mean, I've hired quite a few bootcamp grads and mm-hmm. the ones that end up standing out for me again are still the ones that are able to tell a story because they do a significant number of projects in bootcamp in a very compressed time frame, And so there's always stories they can tell about the projects that they've done. Mm-hmm.
0: I actually haven't hired a lot of recent college grads. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, to me, I think it's, it's similar. I, like I said, I have the story angle is something new to me and I'm going to try that, I think. But, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, but to me it's like, I get a lot of applications that are like, here are the three applications I did uh, during my boot camp, and like I got seven applications from the same boot camp, and they're the same projects, and right. like, and other than the names, these right. are the same thing. And so you really have to think about, like, how did what I do here differ from what my teammates did or how can I present this in a way that shows what I learned or shows the the trajectory of, like...
2: What did I learn? What did I overcome? What did
0: I struggle with in this project? What did those struggles teach me? Right. And the other thing I suggest to people, like, when I do review... Sometimes people will ask for, like, feedback. Like, hey, can you give me any advice on what to do from here? Actually, I'm getting that more and more. And what I try and tell them is specifically things like... Ways in which they might stick out from people in the similar situation would be, like, don't just show me, like, here's the code I wrote. Show me, like, an example that, you, that like, you're submitting pull requests and doing code review and, like, do something like that. If you, can, if you can do that and show that, like, not only do I know how to do the technical work, I know how a team functions when they're writing software. Right. Right. And I write good commit messages and I, like, take care that all that stuff is in line. Yeah, right.
1: I don't think you're going to find good commit messages from uh,
0: code written during a boot camp, though. Because it's under under fire That's is that it's, Yeah, it's, it's, under it's, it's
1: under very intense time pressure and they also you know, it's also their first software project, so they right. uh, haven't necessarily learned even if they've been told, they certainly haven't internalized the importance of that yet. Right.
0: And maybe so, don't even know why a thing that they changed right. worked. And they're just right. like, I don't know, this this worked. Yeah. Uh, and I know the same thing, but sometimes I try to expand on it.
2: I mean I I think another thing that can be helpful, especially for boot camp grads, is most of them have been through a portion of another career before they've done a boot camp. And so, if they can tie that picture together and show
0: how that brings value to the team that they're trying to step into,
2: because it's always there, that story's always there.
0: Yeah, and that's advice I give people as well. Is like I say, what did you do before? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Like, tell me about how you know you worked your way from X to Y, or like Mm -hmm. what skills you think you learned there that will apply to this job. Right.
1: These are definitely things that we. I mean, boot camp grads are becoming a larger and larger percentage of the market so it's definitely a thing that we're gonna have to get better at figuring out what do we want to look for specifically from that group of people
0: and i think the answer differs potentially based on the company obviously sure. like i think right. that what a large product company organization can do as far as apprenticeship and mentorship and how long that ramp can be right. is different from what somebody <laughs> a consulting company can do or a small right. startup can do
2: and that's, I mean, at, at MOVE, we haven't hired any boot camp grads yet. And it's because of that. It's because I know that we cannot support them well where we are as a
0: business right now. Well, you haven't
2: hired them as their first job out of a boot camp.
0: Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> How big is the team that you have now at MOVE? Uh, six. Okay, Six cool. engineers, yeah. And what does MOVE do?
2: We build surgery centers to do hip and knee replacements. Okay. And uh, my team builds the software that the clinicians use to chart and to guide patients through the process.
0: Are you hiring? At the moment, no, we are okay. not. But. So all this is theoretical advice on how to get Nick's attention. It is. <laughs> but when can, the time comes, when the time
1: comes, can, can we get like a coupon code going so that our listeners can go to movehealth slash Bike Shed and get ten percent off a hip or knee replacement? I'm, so, I'm still mad that you haven't managed
2: to get me a coupon for a free knee replacement. Free knee. I think you need you'd have to talk to the federal government about that
0: because I think it's technically illegal for us oh. to do that. <laughs> Cool. What else haven't we asked you about that you want to talk about? That's a good question. What are you excited about these days? Like, when you come to work, what's the problem you're excited about solving?
2: So I think in healthcare, there's a tendency to shove software down clinicians' throats instead of asking them what would actually make their jobs better. And so our team has the opportunity to work really closely with a group of clinicians and actually try to help them figure out how to tell us what software would make their jobs better. Mm -hmm. Because it's something they don't really know how to express either. Right. And so it's been fun to work through that process and try to figure out how to get that information from them.
0: Right. And figuring out the underlying, like, the old, uh, the Henry Ford quote of, like, if I asked people what they wanted, it would have Mm -hmm. been a a faster horse. Yeah. So trying to avoid the, like, I want X and really understanding, like, why do you want X? What is the the pain point we're trying to address (laughs) here? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so we have whole processes around trying to do that. but when. So the clinicians, how far removed are they? Are they the people who you directly use the software and that, yeah. you, and that you sell the software to? Uh, so it's, it's all
2: internal software, so we're not oh, selling okay. it. Yeah. Oh, all right.
0: Okay. So, oh, right. So that's all like, uh, okay, I get the model now. Got yeah. it.
1: <laughs> I do think it's interesting. That can either be something that becomes really freeing because you don't necessarily have timelines because the company, uh, you know, you have, to set, you have to get this new version out to hit the bottom line. But at the same time, then also it does potentially could put you in a situation where you would be forcing software down their throats because...
2: They're using it whether you like it or not. You don't, you don't, they, they, they don't get to vote with their wallets. Right. I mean, that's true. Uh, but one of the things that we're trying to be especially careful of is not doing that. Because right. part of our model is collecting a lot of data so that we can understand how the things that we do with our patients impact the overall quality of care that they receive and the outcomes that they achieve. And so one of the things that we know is that to get accurate data, we have to make it very easy for our clinicians to give us that data. Right in order to do that we have to build software that they want to use not software that we're forcing them to use right and that's funny right ultimately you're
1: asking them the same questions they're at, they're asking their patients where does it hurt <laughs> it's just a lot easier for them to ask it yep yep
2: what did you guys think of the keynote this morning those are not problems that i deal with on a regular basis so we're not to the point i mean we right now we're supporting a few surgery centers. And so we don't have a ton of concurrent users. So scalability is not really something that we deal with. We're very much on the end of the spectrum that benefits
0: from how quickly you can build something in Rails. Right.
1: Making your tests run faster definitely directly affects
0: how quickly you can build something. That's true. So um, so, like, so just as a recap for people who, when they hear this podcast, will have no idea what we're talking about. Right. Eileen gave a talk, this the, the, the keynote this morning, Eileen, you should tell, where she addressed like several changes that are upcoming in Rails 6 for... Uh, enabling parallel tests out of the box and enabling or better enabling you to support connections to different databases at runtime basically. yeah yep and so i i kind of agree that most of the clients that we deal with i haven't had that need but we do we do at thoughtbot deal with people who are larger or have really long test suites and i'm curious to ask eileen like how this differs from like parallel specs or something like that yeah. and what we can expect out of performance on those right. things
1: i saw some people tweeting that, you know, they, they've always seen parallel tests as just a band-aid for slow or poorly written tests, which, I mean, is potentially true. But eventually, like, you just when your test suite is 10,000 tests, doesn't matter how fast they are, running that ma- that many tests is going to be slow.
0: When your test suite is GitHub or Shopify. <laughs> or Shopify, right. yeah. Or I mean, we, our test like suite,
1: that. you basically can only run on CI. We parallelize it o- over 60 different physical machines, and it still takes 20 minutes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm glad not to have those problems most of the time. I'm glad that I can run my tests locally and get output and respond quickly to those. Yeah. So, Sean, does that introduce the whole like uh, the cartoon where it's like I think maybe it's an XKCD or something like that where there's like people sword fighting. Oh yeah. And then so the boss comes out. and He's like, "What are you doing?" And then the guys say, "Compiling." Carry on. Like, yep. Is this like, I'm I'm waiting for CI. Okay, carry basically, on. Basically, yeah. <laughs> pretty
1: pretty much. Uh, it's actually, it makes it very frustrating I have to work on because it's like, it takes 20 minutes. That's enough time for me to go do something else. But that something else probably takes more than 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And right. I basically then work on that until that needs to go to CI. And it causes just all sorts of context switches that make it a not pleasant application to work on. And parallel tests in Rails probably won't affect us that much just because we actually, I mean, we do need to split it over multiple machines because we are parallelizing to a much higher degree than the number of CPUs on any given box. Although I I suspect, you know, it will make what runs on each of those boxes faster, which will be good. Uh, I'll I'll be interested to see how much it actually affects our runtime. I have um, some strong opinions about why are we shipping a thing uh, configured that does not work on Windows out of the box. <laughs> like, right now as it's implemented, Rails' new rake test does not work on Windows. Hmm. Since we are generating parallelize over two forked processes. Well, that could be
0: solved with some conditionals. Sure.
1: I think I think we should be threads by default, personally.
0: Uh, yeah, we'll talk to Eileen. We have her on yeah, later. Yeah, well, we will. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh... We won't make Nick answer for it. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank you. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> I did want to ask you, so we, the last episode that came out before we came to RailsConf, we talked about this blog post that Mike Montero had, re- had written about designs lost generation. I don't know if you read it. It made the rounds yeah. a couple months ago. But one of the ideas inside the piece was this idea that designers, and when Sean and I read it, we both kind of saw it as immediately applicable to developers, too, might benefit from some sort of licensure. As an engineering thought leader. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And we had discussed, Sean and I specifically talked about, like, we have no idea what would be in this. We don't know who would be responsible for it. But perhaps there would be some sort of, like, optional certification or license that you could get that was maybe focused around ethics and maybe some accessibility stuff in there or maybe the regulations you might encounter as a software developer, that kind of thing. I mean, I think to some degree
2: it's inevitable that something like that is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that the whole Facebook thing recently has taught people is how pervasive technology can be in our lives without us even realizing it. Because I think there's plenty of people that didn't really understand what Facebook was doing with the data that they were giving them. Mm -hmm. I still don't think they understand. No, they probably don't. But they're seeing some of what's being done with it for the first time. And the Volkswagen thing as well. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. there's a question of, okay, well, whose responsibility is it? Really, right? I do think it's unfortunate that you can tell very
1: specifically from the congressional testimonies that the people asking the questions did not understand what happened, what the implications of it are. And a lot of them just asked questions that either made no sense or were just segueing into, okay, well, regardless of what your answer, this is the point I'm trying to make. And
0: those are going to be the people who make the rules. Right? I think that's true of all public congressional hearings, it's an it opportunity is. for them to get on TV and to show their constituents that they mean business. And in this case where it's Facebook, it's a win-win. Like there's no they're not going to make anybody mad by criticizing this corporation no. that makes millions of money and is in billions of dollars and is having a little bit of a scandal at the right. moment. <laughs> right. I think
1: I think it's a major problem that the people who ultimately will be responsible for passing legislation on what restrictions are required to write software are all, the
0: same people who cannot open their own email. To to play devil's advocate like they make laws all the time that are things that are not in their area of expertise right and yeah. so we had the best we can hope for is that they have good advisors i think yeah Well, it.
1: i would hope that they that they establish an independent commission something along the lines of the fda or the fcc because mm-hmm. i mean generally when they're passing those sorts of laws that is what they do is it's a law establishing a commission of, of people who are experts in their field and mm-hmm. Establishing what they can do and when Congress overrides them. Right. Right.
2: I mean, uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of experts in Congress on, say, building bridges either. Right. But they were able to come up with effective legislation for professional engineers. Right. And so, yeah, I I think to your point, it's going to have to be a pool of experts from the industry that inform
0: what that could look like. I bet if we asked a bunch of professional bridge builders, they would tell us all sorts of ways that the government (laughs) regulations are wrong. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) And we would do the same if and when that comes to our field. But right. by and large, it would probably be for the greater good. Right.
1: <laughs> right. A big part of it is just recognizing, yeah, if a bridge collapses, that can kill people or, in the best case, significantly uh, affect people's lives. Same thing. If you are collecting social security numbers and you uh, have a data breach, that can significantly affect people's lives. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Anything else we should ask you about? You should ask me what I'm reading right now. Okay, yeah. What are you, Nick, I'm, what are you reading right now?
2: I'm reading The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes.
0: Okay. Is there going to be a talk in this?
2: There might be. I'm trying to figure that out. I I think it ties into what we were just talking about, actually, Mm -hmm. because a significant number of the scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project walked away from the project with significant regret that they had chased the science so far because the science was so fascinating Mm -hmm. without really thinking about the actual global
0: implications of what they were doing. I would be fascinated to read that book. Well, I would be fascinated to hear your report on that book in talk form. And then I will probably be like, all right, I'll read the book.
1: (laughs) Um, Caleb gave a a talk at RubyConf last year that's also uh, Mm -hmm. in the same vein. Uh, The general point of it being, please don't make software that kills people, but (laughs) telling a personal story of him being more involved in that than he wanted to because he was interested in the technical challenges and never thought about the impact that what he was building was going to have. Yep. Had a really good slide deck. Yeah, on um, the slides. I mean, you could, I'm sure they're on the internet somewhere. <laughs> Definitely worth checking out the
0: slides. For people, they're all black. <laughs> <laughs> he did it without slides, which is really impressive, I think. Yeah.
1: He did, yeah. Well, it was a slide. It said, this slide intentionally left blank so that people would be sure to understand that he was giving a talk without slides and not like that there was an AV problem, Right. <laughs> which, was, which was smart. Yeah. That was in your track. It was in my track. Yeah, yeah. that
0: was a fun track. Yeah, cool. All right.
2: Should we wrap up? Yeah. Sure. Nick, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Uh, they can tweet me at nmeans on Twitter or email me at nm at nickol.as.
0: All right.
1: Show notes can be found at bike shed.fm. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much
0: appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bike or leave a comment on our website.
1: Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. All right. We got pitched the last Yeah. <laughs>
0: This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot.
1: We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.